0: Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 246, and I am Ryan Tansom, your host. Have you ever wondered what it takes for a company to make it into the Century Club and last over a hundred years in America? That's exactly what drove Vicki Tenaken to spend 10 years researching the common practices of these incredibly successful and long-lasting enterprises. Vicki is a professor of management at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, and prior to joining the academic world, she worked at GE and Herman. Miller in roles including executive vice president of strategy, general manager of new business ventures, vice president of marketing, and several human resource management positions. Aside from having a working practical experience of understanding what it takes for business to survive over generations, Vicky was a Fulbright Scholar who published several papers on topics of leadership, corporate longevity, and she spent years studying century-old companies in Japan who, very interesting enough, has a ton of data about companies that have lasted over 100 years. She took all of this knowledge, made structured comparisons to the oldest U.S. companies, and released a book on the subject titled Lessons from the Century Club Companies – Managing for long term success. On today's show, we're going to dive into what the best practices of these Century Club companies are. Vicki's going to talk about the five key things that these companies do consistently over time and how they apply to every business and what exactly you need to do in order to get your team aligned with this vision if you have the desire to make a company that lasts way beyond your current state and position in the business. We'll talk about the kind of reward structures that work best for motivating your team as well as clarifying your mission so you can free up focus for what really matters. As an added bonus, we're going to dive into the difficulties family businesses face when they're looking at multi-generational transfers and why the best practices of century-old companies and their long-term view could potentially be one of the healthiest ways to look at the business and the economy that we've come across in a long time. It aligns with conscious capitalism, building shareholder stakeholder value, and really doing what's right for the long term. And as a result, you have one heck of a good business that lasts generations. If you're ready to see if your company has what it takes to last 100 years, then tune into this episode. Without further ado, here's my episode with Vicki. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Vicky, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you.
0: So super excited to have you on the show. Um, I was just, we were just kind of talking back and forth about how I came across you. And some of our uh, clients and people that are on the show are part of Tugboat, which is about long-term businesses and then i someone had posted about the presentation you had given and then i was like oh my gosh who's this Vicky? and then i went and i saw your book and i saw your research i'm like oh my gosh does this fall right in line with the passion of me in the show and you talk about century-old companies yeah. and i you know i had listened to a couple of your podcasts interviews that you'd done in the previous uh with previous people and just i find your int- your research super interesting so for the listeners not Familiar with you or your background? Just give us a little bit of a where did you come from? How did you get involved okay. in this topic? And uh, you know, how did you go about your research?
1: Sure. Um, you know, it, it, I found out after I started this research that every company I'd ever worked for is over a hundred years old. <laughs> but that was afterwards. I, it, it, I found that out afterwards. Yes. Yeah. So oh. it wasn't my initial intent to do that. It no just way. turned out that that was the case. Um, I was uh, very fortunate as a young woman in the 1970s to begin my professional career with General Electric in a management position. And it was a time when most women started as administrative assistants or clerks or secretaries. And and I really appreciated the fact that it started my professional career at, at a whole different level than it might have been otherwise. Um, And I spent five years at General Electric. I learned a lot. But one of the things I learned is it just wasn't a really good fit for me. It was a very large company um, with multiple locations. I was in human resources at the time. And you couldn't do anything without checking with uh, New York first because they didn't want you to set precedent. And it was all very prescribed. So after five years, I, for a number of reasons, I made the switch to what was then a little company called Herman Miller. Probably heard of them. They're, you know, very famous for their uh, modern furniture and office furniture. At the time, they were mainly in office furniture. And I just loved working at Herman Miller. I spent over 20 years there. I started out in human resources. Um, eventually was vice president of marketing, was in new business development and uh, actually started their retail business, which has really taken off in the last year, as you might expect, yeah. in terms of home offices and uh, <laughs> especially seating. And ended up my last five years there, I was on the executive team in charge of strategy and, and chief of staff and uh, learned a lot of really positive things about what a business could be when I was at Herman Miller. Uh, The one quote that I always remember from uh, D.J. Dupree, who was the founder of the company, this was actually written on a plaque that was posted on the entry to their main factory. And it says, a business is rightly judged by the quality of its products and services, but in the end, it must also face judgment as to its humanity. And uh, they very much ran and still run the company with that that thought in mind. They've been a participative management organization since the 1950s because again, DJ believed that every worker should have a say in his decisions affecting his or her job. And that when the company was successful that employees should share in the rewards. So there was a you know, bonus system in place for uh, decades, even by the time I started there. So just a lot of really interesting things that I learned about business. And I decided, I don't think it was a midlife crisis, but as I was approaching <laughs> uh, my 50s, I decided that I really wanted to spend the rest of my professional career uh, teaching Uh, young college students who wanted to go into business and try to form their ideas about what a business could be. And that that there were more things to think about than just the economics of of business. If if you wanted to not only feel good about the work that you did, but that the other people in the company and the customers and the community around you and uh, I uh, was very fortunate to uh, join a, a small, the faculty of small liberal arts college. Uh, and I loved teaching. It was, it was so great to be around young people and, and uh, hear their ideas and, and answer their questions. Um, but uh, it, was, it was soon made clear to me that if I wanted to be a real professor and not just a visiting executive and residence. that I needed to do research. And uh, I did what it seems like every former business executive feels they need to do. My first writing was all about leadership. My ideas on leadership. (laughs) And I called it the everyday leader, if you will. Um, And and actually was quite successful in in getting published in both academic journals and uh, Uh, popular business press, but realized that wasn't really a research agenda. You know, once I said what I had to say, that was kind of it. I dabbled in international business for a while because I'm very interested in in other cultures and other countries, was able to get a Fulbright scholarship along the way to teach in Poland. Talk Mm -hmm. about learning something, try teaching an executive MBA class on change management to people who are trying to manage their company from communism to capitalism.
0: Yeah, um, that's a whole, yeah, that's like, was, I wonder if there's a, you know, above and beyond a PhD. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was amazing. Reading the projects that they prepared was, was a, a whole education in and of itself. But I didn't happen on this research on 100-year-old companies until um, I led our school's uh, Japan May term. And it was while we were visiting our sister university in Tokyo uh, called Meiji Gakuen University, where we listened to a number of lectures from uh, professors there. And one of the economics professors, Makoto Kanda, gave a lecture on shinese. And shinese is the Japanese term for uh, long-lived companies or traditional company in good standing. And some of these companies that he studied were a 1,000 years old. I mean, they have oh, cool. a lot of very old companies in Japan. And when he started describing the characteristics of these companies and the practices that they had in common, I just became fascinated and came up with all kinds of questions in terms of, you know, is it just a cultural thing? Uh, Would I find the same uh, practices in the U.S.? How many companies over 100 years old were there in the U.S.? And so once, you know, all these questions started rolling around in my mind, I realized I'd found a research agenda (laughs) and uh, spent the next 10 years uh, working with Mako on research, both in the U.S. and Japan, trying to answer those questions about uh, common practices of companies that are over a hundred years old and
0: I here love it. I am. oh and i and I love it because you went out and you actually did the research for a decade and what so just to kind of throw out there because I want to unpack what you found in the research and I think the listeners you're bringing a quantitative like perspective to things that i've been talking about for years on this show and so i have had the ceo of uh, conscious capitalism on the podcast and i've had bull burlingham which is a small giant so there's these lingering i shouldn't say lingering there's these topics of be small and be a big a small giant which what does that mean and then understanding that or understanding conscious capitalism where they talk about the six stakeholders and then i got done listening to some of your material I'm like you essentially in your research have proven that what these other people are talking about is legit and it works and it works for hundred year old companies because you have to do so many things right to be around for a hundred years. So where, how did you approach this studies? And maybe like, I don't know necessarily even how to unpack it, but what Mm -hmm. are the main characteristics if you were to, and you probably introduce your your research in a certain way So go for it.
1: Well, tell you first a little bit about the process we went through, because I think, it, to me, anyway, it was important that it be uh, good, statistically sound research, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's one of the reasons that I worked with with Mako in uh, Japan because you know, with his economics background, he could make sure we <laughs> we stayed on solid ground uh, from the <laughs> statistics piece of it, and. Academic research, you always start with a literature review of what other people had done. And interestingly enough, I mean, some of the books I'm sure you've heard of, you know, Good to Great, The Mm -hmm. Living Company, um, a lot of uh, research with good information. But what we discovered is that it was all done on very large publicly owned companies. And as a result, the data sets were small. And whenever you have such small data sets, it's hard to draw statistically significant conclusions. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that the majority of companies in the U.S. and Japan and the world are small to medium-sized privately owned companies. So it wasn't real clear how much relevance that other research had to most of the companies that are in operation today. So we wanted to make sure that our research would be useful and helpful to uh, someone starting a business or someone uh, leading a business today that wanted to seek to last a long time or just to be a good business because um, obviously you wouldn't be around 100 years old if you hadn't done something right so
0: right It's what I'm so excited about. What you just said is it's useful and relevant because it's mainstream, right? So you're not like everybody is spending so much time talking about the unicorns. or raising money or the public companies. And like, it's just a whole different set of rules necessarily. You know, the game is just different. So you actually went in and said, hey, here's what privately held companies that have been around for a, a century have done. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, what,
0: so go, ahead, go for it.
1: Easy to say, harder to do.
0: I will say <laughs> I
1: wore out several student researchers trying to pull together the database of uh, U.S. companies that are over 100 years old. Public ones were easy to identify. You know, you got that handful. and But OK, we know already they're not the, the standard. So to try to identify the privately owned 100 year old companies took a lot of work. Some states have Century Club companies. I bless those governors for doing that because that was the one way of getting getting a list. But then you still had to vet them to see, are they still in operation, et cetera, et cetera. Some industry organizations have Century Club Mm. companies interestingly enough uh the lumber and building industry <laughs> is is a famous one and there are a lot of small to medium sized uh, lumber yards and and building supply companies that are small and over 100 years old agricultural co-ops there are many of them and then a lot one of the things i really uh i am sorry to see is so many local newspapers that have gone out of business because they are the ones that would write articles about uh, companies in their town that had, you know, mm-hmm. achieved the 100 year mark or the oh, 125 yeah, yeah. year mark. And they profile them in the news. And so we'd find those articles online. And, and so, you know, gradually, you know, year after year after year, I was finally able to build a database in the U.S. that was large enough to do the research. While we were building the database here, we were actually doing the research in Japan because uh, the government there has a ready-made database of companies over 100 years old, and they're very compliant in in, uh, answering surveys that uh, college professors might ask them to do. So we started by uh, doing case studies of, um, I think it was two dozen uh, 100-year-old companies in Japan to come up with what they said were their common practices. Then we sent the uh, survey to several hundred uh, companies um, over 100 years old in Japan to see which ones they agreed with, came up then with a list of practices that they all said led to their survival as a company. Um, Then we uh, sent that same survey to all companies in one ward in Tokyo. It was over 7,000 companies, both old and young, in order to see uh, which practices were unique to the old companies. And then we took that same survey and by then had the database in the US and was able to send it to companies in the several hundred companies in the US and to see if the responses were culturally significant or if, in fact, they were uh, the same. So as a result of all this, we were able to come up with statistically significant practices that the 100-year-old companies engage in that, yes, they self-report that they felt they led to their success, but it also seemed true when we compared them to practices of younger companies. And 100-year-old companies in the U.S., we just as likely to engage in those practices as were companies in Japan, because the pushback that I always received at academic conferences, in particular, when I presented the research on Japan was they would say, oh, that's just a cultural thing. You know, there was all around the 1990s. Yeah, I, just, yeah. I think it was there were books published about you know theory Z and Japanese business management, and they were saying, "Oh, yeah, that's a cultural thing. You won't find the same thing in the U.S." And in fact, we did. And that's on awesome. many. Of practices, the U.S. companies were even more adamant about, you know, yes, this is what it takes to uh, to survive for uh, 100 years. So it was uh, very rewarding, even though it took a long time to see that everything uh, was, in fact, reinforced. Some of the practices were the same as what the uh, previous research had shown of large public companies but there were a lot of other things that were quite unique as you might expect for uh as a privately owned small to business small to medium sized business
0: so there's a couple different ways that I, whatever direction you want to go is i want to unpack for the listeners what are the some of the characteristics yep. in general of the century club yep. but also then vicky like well, how does Japan and the U.S. compare? And then there's public and private. So there's a lot of probably sub, sub ways yeah. that you're slicing the data in that. But maybe, I, I don't know if you usually start from the top.
1: Yeah, I usually start by saying, okay, we, there were 63 practices that we identified in the research. And I consolidated those into five what I call factors. And uh, these five factors were ones that were similar across the board. Uh, U.S. and Japan, private, mostly in the private companies and the small to medium-sized companies, but also there were, there were some public companies in the research as well. Um, so the, the, the common factors were, the first one was a clear sense of mission and uh, a strong uh, culture to go along with that. And the the unique thing that came up, and I'm sure this is because so many of the companies were private and small to medium size, they were uh, adamant about the mission not being financially uh, stated in financial terms, if First you First,
0: at least, right? It's like a byproduct.
1: Right. It was like, and uh, don't get me wrong, these are very profitable businesses, or they <laughs> right. wouldn't have lasted for 100 years. But they tended to look at profit as the result of doing what they do and doing it well. One one CEO said, uh, "We we see profits as the fuel for our, our organizational engine, not our destination." Um, they were an automotive supply company. I you love it. Have
0: expected. No, oh, but I love it though. It's it just yeah. shows that. Yeah, I got so many that it just it just proves what the conscious capitalism movement's doing. So anyway,
1: the first factor, a number of different things were included in that. But basically um, having a strong sense of purpose, you know, they why are we in business? You know, what do we do and why are we in business and why does it matter? And then the the culture that that forms around that very strong culture and and making making a point of this is how we do things around here. These are our values. This is what's important that how you get things done is just as important as what you do. The second factor um, was all around. core competencies and and key strengths and how they managed those core competencies over time. Um, Core competencies is an academic term. That's not necessarily the term that uh, these companies would use. They would talk about their strengths, their secret sauce, if you will. Some of them (laughs) literally had a secret sauce. (laughs) Um, It
0: was
1: was a key technology or a way they do business, uh, some processes that they had. Um, that they felt were uh, unique to them and was what made them successful. The interesting thing is the young companies we surveyed also felt they had <laughs> the some certain core competencies. The difference was how the old companies managed them over time uh-huh. and that they were very careful, clear about investing in those core competencies over time to keep them up to date. They didn't rest on their laurels. They were always trying to improve on that, their strengths and their competencies, and making the most of them and saying, you know, where do we need to improve? How do we need to improve? I think it was Peter Drucker who said a company doesn't need to grow in order to survive, but it must improve. And Ooh, so, like you know, the kind of uh, stereotype of a, an old company is some kind of musty old dinosaur that, you know, doesn't change is totally wrong. They wouldn't be around if they hadn't found a way to change and adapt to the times. I mean, you're talking about, you know, world wars, depression, recession, you know, you name they've it, had right? other <laughs> global pandemics they've had to live through, you know, Go, I mean, it's just all the things they've managed to overcome, they wouldn't still be here if they hadn't found a way to change appropriately and improve. And I think it's that change appropriately that was that came out clear in uh, the, the practices that went along with this particular factor. Um, they, well, if I could
0: say one comment on that, uh, Vicki, yeah. when I, I was listening to one of your other pieces You had mentioned in that dialogue that they actually took a while to change, which I found was intriguing, right? So, like, they did it, but it wasn't like some, like, they're not constantly breaking things.
1: And that was one of the practices. They said that we take a long time to make major change. Some said it, you know, apologetically, um, but (laughs) it was because they take their time when making a change that they're able to change successfully. Mm-hmm. So they make a point of explaining the reason for the change to employees and helping them understand why they need to change that will help you change will invest in, you know, whatever new technology you need to learn, but new people might be coming in too to help this happen. But we're, we're all in this together. You know, they, as I said, they don't throw the baby out with the bathwater they make us uh, clear effort to bring everyone along including customers and vendors and you know suppliers and and so it's it, it's that the time and care they take with understanding what needs to change, why needs to change, explaining it, communicating it and then preparing for the change uh, to make sure they've got the, the capabilities to do it. So this it's a very very careful balance of tradition and change. And that they've uh, managed to weather and figured out how to do it. Um, I've had, uh, you know, one of my mentors was uh, Roger Martin, who's written a number of uh, books on strategy and design thinking. Um, And uh, he said that's the most difficult factor of the five is trying to figure out how to balance tradition and change and to, you know, make positive change successfully.
0: And Interesting. Geez. Yeah. Well, because you you have this like like level of uncertainty that you have to manage with everybody. Yeah. You know, no one can predict the future, so it, it takes a lot of. And I and I don't know if it gets into the other three uh, factors, but where like to do what you just said, you can't have this dictator, authoritative, like top down, yeah. you know, style. Like it, you yeah. have to eliminate your ego, and it has to be, you know, it's just a way different approach. Otherwise, yeah. it's just yeah.
1: Yeah, you don't, these companies don't say things like, which I have heard from some leaders, the train's leaving the station, you're either on it or you'll be left behind. You know, they they say, yeah, the train's going to be leaving the station and we want you on it. And here's what, you know, here's what we need to do to make sure that we can right. all get on and be successful in, yeah. in, reaching, in reaching the destination. It takes time. Um, it's not easy and it's not always successful either. I mean, these companies have all had crises that they mm-hmm. talk about, but the crises become stories for, you know, how to be successful in the future. They, they mm-hmm. don't shy away from it. They, you know, said, you know, that one didn't work out the way we thought it would, but, you know, here's what we learned from it. And here's how we'll do things differently in the future.
0: That brings bring to number three.
1: <laughs> yeah. The last three actually, uh, factors all have to do with relationships, and this is this is where when I was presenting at academic conferences, I'd run into trouble because there'd always be some finance professors in the back of the room <laughs> that were like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! That's that, all man? soft stuff, you know? How how can you you know say this?" And it's like, you know, it might be the soft stuff, but it seems to be what really, really matters um, in terms of uh, an organization living and being successful for a long time. The first of the three relationships was that the companies have really deep relationships with their business partners. And they're real partners. When you talk about customers or dealers or suppliers, outside influencers, uh, that they really see them as partners in their business. It's not just an economic exchange. It's it's a relationship that they want to build over time. And so many of them had long term customers. Many of them had long term uh, vendors and suppliers. You know, outside influencers, whether it's designers or dealers that have been with the organization for a long time. And when you have that long term relationship, um, it becomes they really did view them as extensions of the company, not, you know, some outside entity. And it's a reason why, even though many of them were small to medium-sized businesses, they could continue to thrive because they had, you know, all these tentacles out that helped support uh, the business. They would, uh, I heard so many stories about, yeah, we found most of the ideas for new products from customers many of the new technologies that we implemented came from our uh, suppliers who said you know i think i think you might be able to <laughs> to use this um and then kind of working together to figure out a way to 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 make it happen and it was because of the trust that's built in that true partnership that they're willing to exchange strategies and information and technology and uh, and then they're
0: all of them are successful over time. What and a concept, not- right? I just love it. I, just, like, I know, <laughs> and, and I say that because it's just like, to me, Vicky, it's just such like a duh. But then yeah. you go, okay, well, why doesn't it happen? I mean, like trust in relationships, it, like, of course, right? And like, I mean, how many people do you think in the last 12 months realized how messed up their relationships were when their supply chains got completely thrown yeah. a wrench in it? And they realized that the, all the people that didn't treat that well over the last five, 10 years, they now are relying on as people are making priorities and decisions of where things are going to go. I mean, yeah, you have to, you have to rely on others.
1: Yeah. And there are already stories coming out in the last year about how, you know, customers have helped save our business and Mm -hmm. things like that, that, you know, wouldn't happen otherwise. Um, there's just this kind of mutuality, I I guess that that uh develops that over time that it's 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 we're all in this together,
0: mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm.
1: of thing. And uh it it it's um it's a it's fun to to hear and see happen and that it, it can happen. I had one one CEO say, you know, this whole idea of it being more of a relationship than uh, a a mere economic exchange. He said, I prefer covenants over contracts. (laughs) He said, I just really want to see that, you know, mutual relationship, whether it's with a customer or a supplier, you know, that, you know, we have, we have this commitment to each other.
0: And maybe this, I don't, because I want to make sure we go back to the last two, but like, where did this start in these companies, you know, because like over a hundred years, the compound effect of little tiny bits of like behavior, can you walk in and go, well, of course, look at this successful company. But at some point somewhere, whether it was a leader or some crisis somewhere, they determine that relationships and trust and this we're in it together is something that we have to hold on to. Yeah. Where did you see that in the journey of the hundred years? It,
1: it often started with the founder, but not always. Um, sometimes it came out of a crisis in the company where they realized they weren't going to survive unless they changed and did things differently. Um, but it's part of that culture that I mentioned in the in the first uh, mm-hmm. factor that you know that that somewhere along the line, often. Often from the founder, um, there was this um, idea of this is how we do business and that um, it's not just, you know, the owner of the company having a relationship with the owner of the customer company or the supplier. We want everyone in the Mm -hmm. company to build those relationships with your peers in the you know uh our, with our business partners um so you know it, it could be you know it's engineer to engineer or finance person to finance person that's the kind of relationships we want you to have and that that's built into the culture and becomes mm-hmm. an expectation um of super
0: interesting all right so the, the, uh, the last one yeah the yeah, last the two. second
1: uh Or the second relationship factor or the fourth overall factor (laughs) is, as you might expect, um, uh, long-term employees. The employees in these companies tended to be with the company, uh, uh, the length of service far, far longer than in the average organization. Um, And in many companies, you saw generational families in the company Uh, My daughter works at Herman Miller, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's that (laughs) kind of thing that that happens. They see, you know, their parents or their grandparents working for a good company and they do the same. And so th- there's so many benefits that come with having long-term employees, especially if you invest in their continued growth and development. There's this organizational knowledge and, and history that comes with, you know, they can uh, figure things out a lot quicker often. They don't have to reinvent the wheel every time something uh, Some problem comes up uh, and there as long as there's as part of the culture is a willingness to change and be open to new ideas and an investment in training and development, this whole idea of long term employees. and low turnover, um, the turnover rates in these companies is, you know, less than half of the normal in, in the U.S. And so you think of all the money they save on, you know, having to recruit and train new people, oh, for sure. uh, it, it just is amazing. But, you know, that this doesn't just happen. The, the, a lot of these companies had policies and practices in place that were very employee centric and treated employees. Well, as I mentioned with Herman Miller and the participative management plan, many of them had bonus systems in place or mm-hmm. profit sharing, um, a, a lot of, um, you know, kind of employee ownership programs. Of some sort. Yeah, I was
0: going to say, I want to make sure I don't go off on that because I want you to complete it, and then I want to go back to like yeah. some of the. That, um, <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and, and the idea of seeing employees as whole people, um, not just a pair of hands uh, to do what needs to be done for the company that, you know, these are people with families and part of their community and, you know, have uh, uh, talents that they outside of work that they may not necessarily uh, be using at work, but recognizing that the whole person um, and as a result, many of the employees in these companies talked about the company as if it was theirs you know, as if they owned the company, even if their name wasn't, you know, on the, on the door. It was they they felt that sense of ownership and belonging, I guess, is the best way to put it. And then the, the fifth relationship was one that I'm particularly happy to talk about because it was one that didn't come up in any of the previous research that was done oh. because all the research was done on large public.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Companies. And that is the deep relationship that most of these companies have with their community. Um, they um, invest in their local communities. They're the ones that support the little league and the you know PTA and you know all of the, you know, uh Development and beautification projects for their community. So, you know, they invest in their company and for many of them, I think it, it stemmed from, you know, their family name, you know, wanting to be seen as, you mm-hmm. know, a, having good reputation. But then it became wanting to be seen as a good citizen, as a company. Um, and then it becomes wanting the community to be attractive in order to attract new employees and to keep people. And over time, they, it just becomes one with the community where, the, you know, the companies want to invest in the community. The communities will do whatever they can to keep the company uh, there. Self-reinforcing, the, right? I all, mean, it's, it's all reinforcing. And then you get, you know, su- suppliers that will move nearby in order to be a better supplier. And so that helps the economic uh, health of the community. And it just, you know, was, like I said, this reinforcing mutual benefit that, that it started out without any ulterior motive other than, you know, wanting to be a good community member. But as a result, everyone benefited. What a side practice that Um, we identified actually after the research was over um, was that many of these companies are also very environmentally aware and invest in a lot of sustainability practices. And in retrospect, that seemed to make sense because that's part of their community. And they know if they're going to be around for a long time, they want the, the earth to be healthy, their water supply, their, you know, uh, wood supply, whatever it is that they use uh, for as part of their company. It, it, it made sense that they would, you know, be concerned about uh, the environment as defining that as part of their community uh, that they want to have a good relationship with.
0: So awesome. How you quantified What they've done. And I'm curious, Vicky, with all your research and all the time you've spent on this, when you think about like all the people you've met and encountered and interacted with, like, is there a couple moments that are very memorable to you where you were able to say like, wow, these people beat all odds. And it's a good example of what you've pulled out from your research and how they were able to overcome it. I don't know if you got a couple Right on oh,
1: then. there's, yeah, there's, there's several, a couple of them I've, I've mentioned before. There was actually one CEO I interviewed before I wrote the book and, you know, asked him to, you know, look through the results of the research and, and see if he thought it was, it was spot on. And he reached through it. He said, he goes, yeah, I I think, I think you've got it uh, pretty good, but I just don't think you emphasize relationships enough. <laughs> Enough. Uh, right. Um, there was uh, oh one one thing that I I did not mention is one of the practices way back in factor number one in terms of purpose and culture. Part of the culture as since the companies crossed all different industries, you mm-hmm. might expect that their culture and their purpose were varied as well. One thing that was in common though was they. Tend to be very financially conservative, and they uh, are slow to take on debt. They not that they don't ever if they have to, but they they're really careful about it. And when they do, they that's why it takes so long to make change because you know they're like, okay, mm-hmm. we got to make sure this is the right thing to do. Slow to take on debt, very frugal in the way uh, they they spend money. They like to. Own their facilities rather than uh, rent them, which I'm sure a lot of retail businesses now are glad that they're. Mm -hmm. Actually, I did just talk to one uh, six months ago that said, "Well, I'm sure Grant Dan made us buy the store (laughs) so that you know we don't have to worry about you know the rent to pay while the store is closed." (laughs) Um, So, uh, and the one one uh, guy I interviewed. Uh, this was uh, several years ago, um, which you'll tell from the, the story. He goes, "Yeah, we had somebody from Lehman Brothers uh, come uh, consult with us and told us we didn't have nearly enough leverage that we really needed to borrow some more money if we wanted to, you know, be successful and start, you know, growing and investing that." He said, "Yeah, we didn't hire him." <laughs>
0: Yeah, weird. Uh, You don't have enough leverage. And by the way, I get commissioned off of giving you leverage. So I wonder where that's coming from, right?
1: (laughs) And he goes, look what happened to them. (laughs) And we're still here. (laughs)
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, Uh, Oh, I was going to say, and I I, I don't want to. Uh, detract too much from what, what I think is it's super related. I didn't, I'm just in the middle of this book called Makers and Takers. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It was written like four years ago before even a lot of this stuff has unfolded. This woman has described the financialization of business in America. Very interesting where the short-term profits, the stock buybacks, and this consumption. Of like, we're the century club companies, they have to provide goods and services that are profitable and have healthy growth over time. Over time. Like, and it's just like proof. You've literally just proven. No financial tricks,
1: you know, just real solid. (laughs)
0: Weird. Weird, right?
1: Yeah, Ari de Goose, who wrote a book that I really like called The Living Company. Um, he was the head of strategy for Royal Dutch Shell uh, for a number of years, a 200-year-old company, if you will. And he has said that most companies don't live as long as they could because they focus exclusively on economic factors, mm-hmm. not realizing that a business is a community of humans and that you know that it, it once you realize that, then you, it's like, okay, what are we? What value are we providing to the humans in our community? Whether it's employees or customers or vendors or our community,
0: it's so just to take that even one step further, because I couldn't agree with you more and you've proven it through your research. And I think there's a lot more material there, like Simon Sinek's new book, The Infinite Game. He met, he talks about private equity short-term and that being a disaster for the long-term growth of these companies. And so there's other stuff, but you've gotten this baseline of like, hey, it's worked for these companies for a hundred years. But my point is to take it next step further to, which I believe is proof in what you're saying, so I've got four-year-old twins, Vicky. Oh boy! And, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're both girls. Yeah, I've got my hands full. Right? <laughs> is, is but when you have to describe to a four and a half-year-old what a business is, hmm. and literally, because like it's it's this idea of this organization that we have in our minds as a species, right? And this goes a little bit more in the philosophical, but like it's a group of human beings that organize themselves together collectively on a unified vision (laughs) and Mm -hmm. like there is no like there's people just agreeing that hey we're gonna do this together and then the financials as a result and that's like how i had to describe it to my kids it wasn't like i didn't start with there's a spreadsheet with internal rates of return no i was like no there's a bunch of people that got together and made this phone that you played on right
1: (laughs) yes yes i mean financials are important They, they provide the uh met the way to get things done and they're a result, but they're not the
0: purpose. <laughs> yeah. Someone has to buy your your goods or services and yeah. then you have to deliver them consistently over time. How did you, what, what, what popped out on how they handled innovation? Because, you know, I think about how difficult that is. You mentioned how difficult that was and how they approached it with humbleness, but was there anything that stuck out that like how they handled crises or, or uh, innovation?
1: What struck me as interesting, and again, because it goes so counter to what we might think of it from old companies, is how open the leaders were to really weird ideas or how they sought people that they could talk to that were in totally different industries and, you know, that they they didn't have blinders on. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, just... I almost say it it it's it's not the right analogy but almost like children in terms of their wonder and awe of of the world mm-hmm. and wanting to learn from other people. Um, and you know that you get. Unusual for CEOs. You get them in a room and they didn't want to talk about themselves and their company. They wanted to hear about you and what are you doing and what new ideas have you seen? And you know what um what's going on in, in, in your business? And this uh and and it happened inside the companies as well, just being very open to employees coming forward with ideas, or as I said, you know, vendors or customers. And, you know, instead of saying, oh, we we know what we're doing here, you know, don't bother Mm -hmm. us, it would be, oh, well, I hadn't thought of that before, (laughs) kind of thing. But this kind of willingness to embrace even you know really off the wall thinking uh and not just kind of dismiss it but but being open to it and seeing I mean I can remember at Herman miller when uh the designer uh, actually it was a technology that came from a supplier and then one of our designers worked on it in terms of a chair without any cushions and even even our customers said you know no way we're buying a chair without a cushion on it and we said well I'll just you know and so, Over, I think it took five (laughs) years to develop the Aaron chair. And now, you know, that's kind of become the standard, right? Isn't that crazy? At the time, you know, who would buy a chair without cushions? (laughs) You know, it just, uh, but so I think that, you know, that, that, and again, it comes back to culture, that it's built into the culture, the curiosity, openness to new ideas, and not being afraid to try new things and even to fail.
0: Right. And it's, it's, so in that makers and takers book, I mean, the the polar exam, polar opposite example of that is they talked this woman talked about how disastrous GM got after like creating this culture of just like if you brought something up that's bad, I mean, you're just going to get crucified for it. Right. I mean, like you're never going to see that. And that had to do with the ignition recall or something like that. But you just, you know, you're taking it and flipping it to hopefully the ideas bubble to the top. You, you you know, in some of your material, you talked about individualism versus stewardship, and like, you know, I don't know if some of this culture or some of these things that we're talking about right now, I see, uh, I tend to, Vicky, like see these as a result of like the ownership structure or how ownership is translating that structure because. You know, if it's private equity backed or public backed, or with a board of uh, board, uh, a board, all these different things drive down to this Milton Friedman drive shareholder value, right? So, like, I believe that there is such a significance of how the structure of ownership and income is separate. So you have the employees and even the family, like you have the separation of like, hey, there's a financial asset here, but then there's a everybody's got incomes. Was there any kind of commonality or like if you, you said you kind of had the spectrum of all these different structures, but like, did you see anything that bubbled to the top of like what worked or like what was not? It was,
1: it was a variety. Even I will say that in the, I think something like uh, 12% of the Century Club companies in the US are public. Um, many of those are closely held and many, the families still on the board mm-hmm. um, or active in management. So you know, there's that model, and then there's the owner-operator model. Then there's a model where the uh, family maybe still owns it at the company and is chairman of the board, but they have professional management. Mm-hmm. We saw many different uh, combinations, and a lot of it, you know, there. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about what happens as you've said, the third generation, you know, and mm-hmm. and trying to make it. Through that transition, once family is diffused and you have different ideas of you know what what should be done, uh, some of the more successful methods I've seen is where there's a deliberate um, you know family business office, and then. St- a few family members are active managers in, in the business, but they separate, you know, kind of separate yeah. the two. They use the family business office and, you know, maybe twice a year gatherings so that everybody knows what's going on in the business. Um, but then there's a few who are truly interested in running. Running, the, Yeah. It, it's are, like the
0: financial asset of the yeah. equity versus the, and that's what I find so interesting. And like, I was surprised as I was uh, digging into your material the wide variety of them it wasn't it wasn't as obvious as i would have thought like oh yeah most of them are esaps or family held but you like it's public and private and this and that and i and and i just i can only imagine the families and how much they had to level up their understanding of the finance in order to protect them that in order to protect the company from active you know active investors or like the other board members that didn't see the more people that you get involved the more you had to You know, align your view. Like there's more and more stakeholders, and it must be so difficult to make sure you're.
1: (laughs) And that takes it a time investment. The one company that um, I've worked with that isn't quite a hundred years old yet had, you know, significant family division issues along that. And they were so adamant about wanting to keep the company together, not having to go public, that they truly invested in, you know, getting everybody together and and really talking through it, working. There's several family business organizations that are really good, I think, at consulting with these organizations and helping them manage through those issues because it's, there, there's so different ways to do it. I don't see that there's any one method, but what I think is required is that there's unanimity around wanting to stay an independent operation. And if if you can get there, that says that, you know, survival as an independent entity is what's important to us then I think, um, you know, a lot of these other things are, can be helpful in, in yeah. getting there. But if you, if you don't come to that conclusion, if you say, no, I really want to, you know, just grow to the point where we can sell and get our money out, then, then you've got some problems.
0: Uh, What's so interesting too, cause you just, it, like you're boiling it down to what is everybody in agreement on? Cause then everything, every strategy and choice becomes a derivative of what you agreed upon. And like, if you think about what you just said of we're in agreement that this entity needs to exist. Well, you need, then in order to be super excited about that, you should hopefully have one big mission and purpose statement, right? Cause like, otherwise, why would you get excited about that? Otherwise it'd just be about the money. Yeah. So you kind of just, it's super interesting how it all kind of falls in like that. You had talked about and uh, some of your stuff, the power of storytelling, which I thought it- was interesting. So why don't you kind of explain how that fits into yeah. the, the Century Club?
1: Yeah. So um, stories are very powerful, I think, in terms of helping understand people as well as companies. And, you know, and especially in, in transferring culture and you'll have uh, new employee orientation in these companies is is a storytelling process often, because it's not just, you know, filling out the forms for insurance and, and, <laughs> and taxes, is <laughs> okay, this is the company that you're joining. And this is who we are. And this is how we do things. And, and so often it's stories about the, the founder or significant uh, people and that helped make the company successful, about big successes as well as crises that the, the company had faced. But it, it's the process of storytelling that the message becomes so much clearer and, and uh, more understandable and more memorable. I think when I was at Herman Miller, the uh, uh, CEO who was then the son of the founder would every quarter at the quarterly business meeting, I was all hands on deck. He would start with a story Um, and then that story made the point that he wanted People to remember or to learn for that period. And then he ended up publishing that, that all these stories in a book called Leadership as an Art that uh, be, became a very famous book. But it's I still remember those stories, but like, you know, when he introduced the uh, whole idea of every every employee would be an owner in the company and that, you know, he he started by talking about um, a friend of his who was, you know, working on a camp for inner city people, inner city kids, and took them out into the country. And the first thing that they did was try to play a baseball game and none of the kids wanted to play outfield. And he was like, you know, what, you know, what's wrong with you? I don't want to play outfield, you know, and they said, well, there's, there's animals in the woods and, you know, they might come get us. I don't want to be out there all alone. And so the way he solved it was by having two kids play every outfield position, one to watch the woods and one to feel the ball. <laughs> and, so, and he said, and that's what we have at Herman Miller. Now we have two people in every position an owner and a worker so that everybody, while they're doing their job, they're also able to watch the woods because, you know, you, you're both an owner and an employee. And so it was through stories like that, that concepts just, you know, really stuck in your head. (laughs) And, and the matter of fact, one company when it gave out awards, Uh, longevity awards once you've been with the company 20 years you became a storyteller it was like okay now it's you it's your obligation to continue to tell the story to new people so they understand who we are and how we do things and that realized that that could be more powerful than managers telling them that you know this is how you
0: right it's not in some you know plain vanilla you know, corporate doc that they're going to get on a memo on a yeah, that's awesome. what when you think about your research, what is what are your hopes that what what is your hopes for the research and what kind of dent do you want to have on the world because of it?
1: My hope all along was, um, well, first, I wanted to just highlight these companies and you know how great they are. But what I hoped for was that, My students, I mean, this was at the time when I was still teaching, were mostly interested in entrepreneurship, and they wanted to start a company, or many of them were going to work in family companies that they were part of. And so my hope was that this would provide some guidelines for how to build a good company, um, that... Um, It wasn't just about the the financial or economics of business that if you if a company has done these things and has been in business for over 100 years, they must be doing something right. So it's a good thing to do (laughs) for your company. But in the process. It's good for employees, it's good for customers, it's good for your suppliers, it's good for your community, it's good for all the stakeholders. And that if we can, my hope was that people starting companies or leading companies today who wanted their organizations to last would uh, take these practices and, uh, begin to apply them. And I think that, uh, uh, we will we'll all be better off if we have businesses that operate this way.
0: I, I can't thank you enough for the research that you've done, because I think Vicky, it'll be interesting to see how the next five to 10 years unfolds and how all your research is used. Because I believe, like I had mentioned Simon Sinek's book, the infinite game, he mentions there's, there's, there's this anecdotal, like conversation happening or these books getting published that i'm watching like infinite game or conscious capitalism bold Burlingham, It's like small giants that are kind of proving this but you are actually using you proved it with the data with these companies that have already done it instead of it being kind of someone's sideline opinion based on their experiences you've said hey here's how to do this and what i love is that this is helping flip the script that if you're the like and what i said is like if you're the greediest human being on the planet you would do this which means that humans and our all the stakeholders come first because it generates the profits because what's happening is we're watching the current situation destroy profits yeah. right like like so like yeah. truly if you're the most greedy individual and you've provided the research now to support people's opinions that are out there so the reason I say it it'll be interesting to see how the years unfold because i think there are people who are going to have to start referencing your research because people people are caring enough where they have to prove their points now
1: Yeah. And it's what I'm particularly proud of is that it's more than just case studies, um, because, you know, when you have small data sets, you can do case studies and you can say, oh, that's interesting. Uh, But I think with the number of companies that were involved in in the research and the statistically significant results, yeah, hopefully it does carry some some
0: weight. So two last questions for you. One is what does the word intentional mean to you?
1: Intentional. Yes. <laughs> Being
0: deliberate. I love it. Straight, straight to the point. I love it. Second question is: uh, if people want to get in touch with you, find your research, find your book, what, what's the best place for everybody to go?
1: Well, um, the book uh, "Lessons from Century Club Companies" is available as an ebook or paperback on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, you can go online and and get it. I have a blog, uh, How 100-Year-Old Companies Survive, um, that I post to occasionally. You know, I'm uh, always available to answer questions at uh, centuryclubcompanies at uh, gmail.com. Or I still have my Hope email. (laughs) So tenhaken at uh, hope.edu would work as well.
0: Vicki, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a a blast and I I appreciate everything you've done.
1: Well, I appreciate your interest. And as I said, I think the the more the word can get out about how to make a a good, long-lasting company, I think we will all benefit from. So thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed the interview with Vicky. I think there are so many good gold nuggets that we can take away from any company that's lasted a hundred years. What I found was super interesting is that additional step that she mentioned that companies that lasted a hundred years protected with all their might their ability to stay independent. We didn't really touch much on it in this episode, but understanding how you're bringing new equity and new capital into the business in order to maintain your growth or to capitalize on opportunities is okay, but you have to protect your core mission, the core values of the business, and make sure that that capital and equity is aligned with your long-term goal. I thought it was really interesting that she was able to explain that these long-term companies over 100 years aren't only family businesses, which was shocking to me. There were some that were public, there were some that were private equity-backed, and there was all these different capital structures and equity structures that showed that there are options out there but I would argue, or not necessarily argue, my bet is that if you dug into the research that those people that took on outside capital and equity knew exactly what they wanted it for, how it was gonna help them maintain their company over time, and they were unbelievably selective with the people that were tied to that outside capital. If you want help figuring out what you want and why, go check out the Intentional Growth Training at arcona.io. We've got a bunch of new videos videos and web pages out there that hopefully make it super clear what's in the course, what you're going to get out of it, and how it could help you make progress towards building a more valuable business that gives you choices. Thanks for tuning in, and I will see you next week.